Our scripture reading for the sermon this morning comes from Exodus chapter 32 as we continue our sermon series in Exodus. A lot of exciting things have happened. The Israelites got rescued from Egypt. They got to meet God on the mountain and he gave them instructions to build a tabernacle. Things are pretty great uh, and it doesn't take long uh, for things to get sad. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and his writing was the writing God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. 
And Moses said to Aaron, Why did this people do to you? What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go out before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, on the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word now, and we do pray that it will be clear, it will be uh, deeply uh, uh, meaningful, and uh, that you would uh, really uh, speak to our hearts and unveil to us what aspects of our life need to be turned over to you. Uh, what, what a passage, uh, what a sobering reminder of, of the human condition. <clears throat> we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, yeah, it's quite, a, it's quite a passage, isn't it? Um, the golden calf, uh, I'm sure that it is uh, familiar to many of you. I'm thinking of some of you who are newer to the faith, and it may be a completely new story uh, for you. Um, idolatry. In the middle of this amazing book with such great hope, uh, people who have been delivered from Egypt, uh, and they are doing so well, Uh, waiting for the tabernacle to be uh, built, and then this great, uh, great sin against God. The 
the, the, the story of the golden calf. Hmm. So let's, let's unpack this a bit. And uh, first of all, I want to just share with you just more of a global and large uh, macro uh, picture here. Um, idolatry is really a, uh, an issue in the Christian life. And I want to make sure that we are not just going to bemoan our culture when we think about idolatry. Certainly lots could be said. Uh, but this all takes place um, in the context of God's people. And so that's uh, uh, probably the, the great weight of the passage is that we know they, sh- they know better. And uh, we, we know that idolatry is an issue in the, in the church and uh, the church's history has actually had a struggle with idolatry. Israel in the Old Testament, this is the key, the key sin. So well, let me just do this. I'm going to unpack the passage for you because it has a couple of things that need some explanation. And uh, some things are going to perhaps be left a bit of a mystery. Um, what's going on with them? Uh, verse 1, uh, suddenly there's this impulse, they've grown impatient, and they wonder what's happened with Moses. And so um, this 40-day period where Moses has been up on Mount Sinai receiving instruction, and they, they press Aaron to, uh, to, make, uh, to make a golden calf or a bull. And uh, so Aaron ob- obliges them. Uh, he designs the calf. And uh, then he pronounces in verse 4, these are the gods who delivered you from, from Egypt. And it's not a, com- it's not a complete uh, turning from God. It's, a, it's an expression of, well, we can't see God anymore, but now we, can, now we can imagine him. So it is a violation of the second commandment for sure, a violation of the first commandment, no other gods. But what they're doing is they're struggling to figure out what does worship look like, and they're impatient. And so it is a great apostasy and then they, in fact, start a feast. They have a feast, and they're, they're going to celebrate, uh, and they're going to enact uh, sacrifices to, uh, to this golden calf. And so in verse 8, we have the comment that they have turned aside so quickly. And God comments in verse 9 that Israel is stiff-necked. And then there's this remarkable dialogue with, with Moses uh, and God. And I think much of the passage is telling us that the mediator, Moses, is, is doing his work, and he is, he is even going to help in this situation. Moses is very much aware of the covenant stipulations. There are blessings for obedience, and there are cursings for disobedience. He's very much aware of these. It's really quite remarkable what Moses says. He says that he, he wants to intercede for God. The monitors are on, or I'm just getting a lot of. I'm going to keep going. Okay. So it's really remarkable that Moses wants to intercede for God, and he is he's actually concerned about God's reputation. And so Moses hears that God is going to uh, be wrathful toward the people, and uh, what happens is that Moses then intercedes for for God, for the people, I should say. He's aware of the level of threat that's underway. So Moses now is coming down the mountain and he's carrying the word of God with him. He has two tablets. The first tablet are the first four commandments. And the other tablet has the other six commandments. He's carrying these down. And he 
he hears from Joshua that Joshua's trying to interpret what's happening at the base of the camp, and he interprets. Joshua thinks that there must have been a, some sort of war skirmish, a, a, a battle taking place, and that perhaps the people are, are singing in victory. He's not sure what's going on. So Moses then, in verse 19, breaks the Ten Commandments. So the people have not even really received them officially yet, and they have now, uh, now they're breaking them, or Moses is breaking them. And then Moses burns this golden calf, makes it into dust, and the people drink it. And it is described in verse 21 as a great sin. Then we have Aaron's explanation of it, and I heard some of you laughing while you heard it because he describes, look, they just gave me their gold, and look what the fire has made. One of the troubles we might have with the passage is, why isn't Aaron judged? Because uh, he certainly is complicit in the actions, and I think that remains somewhat of a mystery. But it's a very serious moment, and Moses realizes that judgment's going to happen. And so Moses calls out, in verse 26, he calls out at the gate, who is on the Lord's side? And from his own tribe, the tribe of Levite, we have people who show up and say they are on God's side. And the tribe of Levi uh, remained pretty much faithful. And so they show up at the gate Basically, these are those who did not get involved with the event. And then we have, in verse 27, a statement that 3,000 people die. And Moses commissions the death of these people. So the instigators are killed, and then Moses is aware that that may not even be enough because... What about the whole camp, the whole camp that participated? Uh, This is actually the the beginning of the the Levitical priesthood, and Moses uh, says to them, today you have been ordained, verses 28 and 29. Uh, And it specifically says that the cost of of a son or brother. In fact, as as unusual as this sounds, they are blessed for not having been part of the rebellion. And so there's more intercession that has to happen. Moses is aware that something is possible could happen to the whole camp. So much of the passage is actually about Moses' intercession. And then he offers his own life because he hears that God is going to be kept at a distance. He's going to keep himself at a distance from the people. And in verse 32, he begins to talk about being willing to be blotted out of God's book, if you see that there. And sometimes we think, well, maybe he's thinking in terms of losing his salvation, that there's a a book in heaven with the names of people written in it. And most scholars believe that what's going on here is actually very similar to Nehemiah chapter 9, when it mentions that the names of those who had signed on to the covenant. And what Moses is saying here is he's saying, I'm willing to be seen as one who's not in covenant with you, or I'm willing to be seen as one who has no protection. 
I'm willing to, to no longer have the blessings of the covenant. Let me be a nomad. Let me be a traveler. Uh, let me be one who has no home with you anymore. Let the blessings go to someone else. Let the blessings that would fall upon me fall upon these people. So you can, you can already now begin to picture Christ in Moses. God promises that he will lead Israel. Verse 34. But judgment is coming. And a plague is sent. And the people learn in chapter 33 that God will continue with them for the sake of his promises. But we're starting to realize that God is not going to abide with this generation much longer. And in Numbers 13, we will find that they... They, aban- they, they abandon God all, wholesale and, and turn and say, look, we will not receive the report of the spies. And you have, you've brought us here to kill us. Uh, would, it be, would it have been better if we died in the wilderness or in Egypt? And so then God gives them, gives them one of their choices. And they die in the wilderness. And so... Uh, they continue on with God, but this sober, sober reality is that they, they move very quickly to idolatry. In our modern world, uh, this text just feels so, it all feels primitive a bit. It feels uh, very, um, it's not very politically correct. Um, how, you know, how do you stand before uh, sophisticated modern people and, and talk about this. It's right here in our Bibles. Uh, there's no uh, watering down of it. There's no explaining it away. There's, it's just right there. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, God called people. Uh, he stipulated the, the demands of the covenant. Uh, they radically violated this. And then God enacted judgment. And we know that the, the core of it was idolatry, turning away from the living God. That's it. Turning away from the living God. So, what is idolatry? Well, idolatry is a wholehearted response to an imagined promise. The promise holds forth Deep meaning, protection, value, beauty, fullness of life. There's a promise. And it's a wholehearted devotion to that promise. It's done uh, as a human being uh, turns to an object or an idea. And what's happening is, it's not just the turning to that object or idea, but it's actually a expression of worship. It's quite remarkable in our day and age um, of celebrity worship. Uh, You actually can see t-shirts where people are actually expressing their worship of of a celebrity. It's actually there. We have a TV show called American... Okay? So we're, we're rather comfortable with the idea of an idol... And uh, we're quite remar- it's quite remarkable 
But what's happening here is that in idolatry, there's almost always, um, there's the sin, but then there's the sin underneath the sin. What I mean by this is that, let's take gambling addiction, for example. Now, at one level, you'd say, well, it's just the thrill of, uh, of, of winning and the thrill of, uh, of risk-taking, gambling addiction, loving to go against the odds, right? Um, but what's underneath a gambling addiction? It's not just an impulse to, or the thrill of a casino or whatever it is. It's, it's not just that. Underneath a pursuit of money in this way is a turning away from the living God. It's a statement of saying, I can control, even with low odds, I can control my financial destiny. I can make some magic happen. I'm going to bet on the long shot. And I can do it. Now, most of us realize it's quite an illusion. And it's quite a risky thing to do. In Exodus 32, we find out that God is not indifferent to idolatry. He's not just saying, well, they're struggling to understand me. They don't have enough knowledge about me. He doesn't give them a break. They know enough, and they're turning away from the living God. This is the core of idolatry. Idolatry is turning away from the living God. So uh, a gambler, let's say uh, someone who is risking their family livelihood with gambling, the idol is whispering to them. The idol is whispering, I can come through for you. Sacrifice a bit more, and I will take care of you. What's happening is the money God is consuming them. They are being consumed. And in the process, having turned away to something that is not alive, a $100 bill is not alive. It may feel like it's alive, but it's not. Having turned to money, which is not alive... You become like what you worship. Psalm 115 says this. So you take on the characteristics of what you have devoted yourself to. So in many, many ways, what God is doing in this passage is he's protecting the people from this vortex that will lead to further debasing of their humanity. The living God will make them come alive. And everything else will make them die. They'll become weightless. They will lose their identity and they will become like what they worship. A $100 bill, having been lost at the casino, now is no longer available to feed your children. It consumed, the idol consumed what was good and meant for a good purpose. Children go without food, without a car, without clothes, without a father, without a mother. Idolatry 
is a threat. So whole nations can become idolatrous. That it, the state itself can be an idol. We've seen that in, in history, particularly the last hundred years, some really graphic examples. So what does idolatry do? Well, we described some of it. First of all, <clears throat> idols are really a perversion of all that is good, that God has made good. Sex is good under God's design and plan, but as an idol, it is degrading and enslaves us. Idols enhance us. We worship them. We feel sort of 10 feet tall. Idols demand a sacrifice. Idols almost always are, come along and they create an ideology. In other words, it's not just that you, you engage in this particular activity, but there's a whole philosophy trying to justify it. <clears throat> and then idols enslave us. The Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 10 that behind idols were lurking demons. The idol has no power in itself, but interacting with the human, with the human being, something demonic, even demonic, can be happening. So, when I, as a kid growing up, um, I'd be having my cereal, and uh, a magazine, a magazine like this would come to our house. This is National Geographic's uh, Holiday 2012 catalog. And if you buy things in here, um, you will be supporting uh, research, education, conservation, and exploration. So that's an incentive to buy stuff. And I was reading about the men's all-season travel jacket. And uh, here's the image of it. And we're all really susceptible to images. And uh, let me just read this to you. And guys here, let me just see if this this resonates with you. The all-season travel jacket. Be prepared for virtually any weather condition while still packing light with this microfiber jacket. Mist and rain are no match for the weatherproof exterior and the zip-out poly-filled wool lining adds warmth only when you need it. Now here's the really good stuff. Ready? Brimming with storage space. Two exterior welt pockets each have an internal zippered security pocket. Hey, check this out. You'll find inside another zippered security pocket, a cell phone pocket, and an easy access slit pocket. And it goes on to describe this all-season travel jacket. Not just one security zipper pocket, but two. And I just, wow. And I kept thinking about I kept thinking about this. I thought, wow, I don't need a jacket here in Hawaii. But wouldn't that look cool like through in Chicago airport when I travel? And I kept thinking about it over and over, and I felt stupid for not having this jacket. <laughs> Why haven't I had this jacket for so... What's going on with me? What, and I, again, it goes to research, and it goes to conservation, get my visa card out. Interesting, isn't it? There's a promise. You, 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 it feels silly, doesn't it? I'm standing in front of you holding a catalog about a jacket. Does this image have power in and of itself? The answer probably is no, but I will give it power. 
I will dwell on it. Didn't have me on one zipper, but two. I went, wow, I really might need that. And then I imagined how I would look in that. I would look like a really competent traveler. I'd look beautiful. I'd look good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a big subject. It's, it's bigger than one sermon. We are interacting with images constantly, and Israel is stuck without an image. It just can't be. We give the image power, and then it defines our meaning and purpose. It makes us beautiful. And uh, we've been made for the living God. We've been made to, through worship of him, come alive. There's no life. There's no life here. Let's say I buy this thing. I'm flying to Chicago, and the little kid next to me throws up on it. How will I respond? With compassion and love? How do you know you're under the grip of an idol? It's mostly your emotional life. Anger, impatience, disregard. You act inhumanely toward people because they've messed with your system. So let me ask you a few more questions because I realize it really feels uncomfortable in here, doesn't it? Let's turn away from what grips us. What do you believe in too much? What owns you? What do you want too much? Now, part the gift, one of the gifts of worship is an awareness of that because I think that what God does in worship is he makes us aware of what's controlling us. Uh, your spouse may be giving you some signals, but you're not picking up the signals. So in worship, God graciously sends you a stronger signal. And so let me ask you a couple of areas of your life, uh, more than a few areas. Um, Tim Keller has been so influential speaking uh, to the idols of people who live in Manhattan, downtown New York City. And this has resonated with them. This is a list of a number of idols that people struggle with from Tim Keller. Life only has meaning and I only am worth something. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. It's described as power idolatry. Uh, Approval idolatry. I am loved and respected by, and then a couple of people come to mind. I live for their approval. How about comfort idolatry? I have to have, I have to have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. Control idolatry. I am able to get mastery over this area of my life 
and that mastery, and that mastery alone helps me feel like I have worth and meaning. How about those of us who, in a very powerful way, love to have other people dependent on us? Sort of a helping idolatry. People are dependent on me and me alone. Only I can help them. Then there's a, a, a very real one as well. Uh, dependence idolatry. Someone is there to protect me and to keep me safe. Uh, and on the other side of it, there's independence idolatry. I'm completely free of obligations and responsibilities. I don't need anyone to take care of me. Do you see how it works? Either way, it, it pushes, pulls, goes different directions. How about your work idolatry? I only find meaning and purpose in life and value when I get things done. Get out of my way when I have my to-do list. And it goes on. Achievement uh, idolatry. I am, I am being recognized for my accomplishments and my, ex- my excellent work. Materialism. Only a certain kind of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Uh, Religion idolatry. I'm adhering to my religious moral codes, and I have a pretty good accomplishment record uh, in this activity, so my religion is working for me. Then there's the opposite of that, sort of the individual personal idolatry. This one person in my life is there and, I, and happy to be there and, I, and happy with me so that I'm just with one person and we are just, we got it. I finally found the one place, the one person. And then some people are just completely opposed to religion and so they love irreligion. And so I have a self-made morality. I have a self-made way of thinking about everything. It's all lodged in me. And so it is a... Uh, irreligion idolatry. My race and my culture must be ascending. And only here can I find meaning and purpose in life. And so, racial or cultural idolatry. A particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group that lets me in. This has been described as inner ring idolatry. How many want me to stop at this point? It goes on. Uh, my children and my, or, or if you're a child, my parents are, are happy and happy with me. And so there's kind of this family idolatry that I'm only thinking in terms of my family continually, always. And this and this alone gives me meaning. There's another very strange one. I'm, I'm hurting. I have a problem. I continually have problems. This grants to me attention from people. Then only do I feel worthy of people's love. And I'm able to deal with the guilt of it. So, strangely, suffering idolatry. Ideology idolatry. My political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence and power. And so that, that and that alone can make me okay. Um, I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image idolatry. So, (laughs) it takes place among God's people. 
Chapters 32 through 34 are unique break from the sort of flow of Exodus. In chapter 34, something very interesting happens. Moses has spent so much time with God, he's talking to God as one talks to a friend. And Moses' face begins to shine. And you know the story where he comes down and the people notice it and he actually wears a veil because it's so powerful. He's reflecting the glory of God. Moses has been worshiping, enjoying his God, and he's now reflecting the very glory of God. You've been made for the glory of God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. So here's here's the New Testament connection. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how we are being transformed day by day and that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And it's happening through worship. How do you break the idols of your heart? You break them through worship. How can a jacket just be a jacket and nothing more? Because something more weighty, something more glorious, has to make it seem silly. It's just a jacket. Something has to free you in order to be a human being again. And to turn to some aspect of creation and let it rule you is to lose your humanity. And this is what idolatry is. Some aspect of creation is now ruling over us. And God comes after that. Through Jesus Christ, God rescues us from the proclivities of our heart. And I want to send a signal out to you. Here's the deal. Uh, If you are aware of this proclivity of your heart, if you're discouraged, if you're saying, I I couldn't ever tell this to anyone, I want you to know you can tell tell me, you can tell the elders. We want to the gospel's power. You could tell your fellowship group leaders, you can tell your friends, we want the gospel's power to be the way in which we break idols. The one who has spoken to you is an idolater by nature. And the gospel's power must work daily, day in and day out, in order to break these idols. And what's the point of it? The point of it is not that we would just sort of be uh, afraid, but that we would actually move in the freedom of the gospel, meaning that God is going to work on us at the level of our loves and free us from this tendency of the heart. So we are here for you. As a church, we are going after the idols of our heart. Sunday after Sunday, it's a really pretty regular thing here. So let's turn to Christ now. Let's give him that, those places of our heart where we have, we have something that's become too important to us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you'd help us recognize what's gripping us. 
Father, you are not indifferent to idols and to idolatry. And so, Lord, free us not by, by sheer willpower. Father, free us not because we're just more determined or more surrendered. Free us because we're yours. And you know us through and through. Free us through worship of Christ, who came for people like us. Give us the power of love. Then let that love cast out all our fears. We pray these things in the matchless, powerful name of Jesus, who can smash the idols in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.